Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 250, recorded May 26th, 2010, Operating Systems. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express. If you're in tech support, clients rely on you for fast and reliable service. Help them the fast and easy way with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit GoToAssist.com slash security. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about your security and privacy online. And who better to, to lecture on this subject than Professor Steve Gibson. The King of Securities from GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, the creator of Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility. I've given you the title. Steve's looks perplexed. I've well, this, the word lecture, Leo, I'm not, you not know, exactly. lecture, I've got a kind of a dry, boring connotation. I wouldn't say that the episode known as the portable dog killer would. It wasn't a lecture. That was now, a, that would not be a lecture. A story of worthy an, of Garrison Keillor. That, that was, was a, that was more of an adventure, I think. So. Lecture's not. But, you know, there are some lectures that are exciting and, 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 and engaging. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, a, a good lecturer is. Discussion. I like discussion. discussion? Think more okay. interactive, more, more, more participatory, more listener involved. So. Well, anyway. and we've been having Whatever a great series of discussions on building a computer from first principles, from the ground up. Yep, today we're going to talk about operating systems, the history of them, and also what they are doing for us in contemporary machines. So sort of, you know, we've, we've essentially, we've, we've as, as you said, started at first principles. We've been very carefully layering concepts on top of previous concepts building an understanding we've talked about you know the, the most recently the multiverse the notion of multitasking multi-threading multi-core and so forth well it's the operating system which is really the final piece of this which which is the you know the the overseer the well they it used to be called a monitor at at one stage in the evolution of computers you had the monitor that was you know Essentially, they're governing what goes on. Of course, we have essentially that today with user programs running atop this operating system. So today we're going to plow into the long-term evolution and then also what are all the features of contemporary operating systems? What do they do for the programs that run in them or on them or around them, through them and so forth? And of course, we've got Security news updates, uh, a bunch of errata that I think people will find fun, and a, a, uh, an interesting short little spin-write testimonial sent by a listener, and, uh, and then all the OS stuff. As usual, a jam-packed program full of chock-full of goodness. Recharge your iPods. <laughs> yes, you don't want the battery to run out in the middle. I love these up from building it up from the basic principles. I just think this is just fascinating. And we're going to do that again as we have discussed. The next major series will be starting from the bits, building up the Internet. Wow. Wow. 
So when do we stop? I mean, when do you get, when do you, when are you done? How do you know when you're done? With a given series? Hello? No, I was just saying, how do you know when, I mean, I guess you'll be done when, when you get to mobile phones. I mean, when, when are you done? Oh, um, I mean, like with, with networking series. No, stuff. just in that, general, like building a computer. Um, well, my the- my feeling is that this episode, operating system, is going to finish it up. It wraps us up. Okay. We we've we've gone from we've the, what I mostly wanted to get people to understand is that there isn't anything frightening or scary or magic. There, I mean that essentially that the way our computers work today is one hundred percent knowable. There, you know, and we started by we started at the beginning by saying, look, if all you have to have is a blob of memory that and something called a program counter that has a current value pointing into this blob of memory and that the individual bits in the word determine what happens next. And and basically we've built everything up from that. And, um, you know, and I know that our listeners have gotten a kick out of it. So we've had a lot of great feedback for it. I wanted and to, gonna... I had mentioned before this book, and I thought I'd mention it as we come to the end of this. Uh, again, if people uh, are interested in this notion, um, the elements of computing systems, building a modern computer from first principles. And I got this because I thought this might be a fun thing to do with a class at some point in school. And, it, and it's the same kind of the same idea that you, you've been doing. Uh, a little less. Um, you're very practical, but this is this is um, talking about you know. F- there's the assembler. There's machine language. There's sequential logic, Boolean arithmetic, Boolean logic. You know, you have to understand all that. And this is a lot of the stuff that you've kind of covered. So, um, and it, and here's the last chapter: operating system. Well, so. and you know, the whole approach we take on this podcast is one of boldly going where. No podcast has gone before. I mean, you know, we dealt with cryptography and and said, look, I'm going to explain to you exactly how the AES cipher works. Here's how it works. And, you, you know, we come away saying, oh, that's all? That's all it is? That's uh, now I understand it. And hopefully listeners of our computer series now get what it is, what machine language is and and so forth. So, yeah, this is, you know, when you you just say, okay. This isn't frightening. This isn't hard to understand or impossible. It's like, okay, let's understand it. Well, we're going to get right to that in just a second. Before we do, I do want to say hello to our friends from Citrix, the folks who do go to my PC, go to meeting. And for those of you who are in the support field, go to Assist Express. This program has been around uh, for a while. I think I used it the screensavers to help people. We used it on the TV show. That was when it was Go to Assist. Go to Assist Express is faster, easier to use, and has a lot more of the features that support professionals need. For instance, the ability to do eight sessions at the same time, unattended sessions if you need. Uh, but the beauty of it is your customer, your client, in my case, my mom, <laughs> doesn't need to have Go to Assist installed. I've got it on my system. And I, you know, I say start a new uh, uh, a session. She can either go to the go to assist.com page and say start a new session, and then we'll link up. She has to download 30 seconds worth of software. It's very quick, very easy, nothing to install except just this little stub. And now I'm working on her system, or I can send her a link to, to make it a little bit easier. 
And so it's very straightforward, very transparent. You don't have to make a drive across town to help a client or down even down the hall to help a client. And you certainly don't have to do those long, painful support calls that we all know, um, you know, where you just, oh, it's, I mean, it's so frustrating. I, I, I've even yelled at my mom. <laughs> I admit, no, mom, click the start button, the start, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Never again. Start your sessions in one click, just like all the services from Citrix, Mac or PC, just like all the Citrix's services. Uh, you can share your screen, too, by the way, so you can show them what something's supposed to look like or how something works. There's an integrated live chat. You can converse with your support ease. Easy to diagnose the prog- problem, and if you've got a fix, you can just drag and drop it from your computer to theirs. Um, you can also see what's running on their system, not just the operating system, but what software is in the background, what security software is running. Look, you're going to solve more support questions more quickly. You're going to help clients even when they're not there, and you can do it free for the next 30 days. I want you to go to gotoassist.com, G-O-T-O, assist.com, slash security, and sign up for 30 days free. No cost, no obligation. Um, I, yeah, I, they also have day passes. So if you're not a regular support person, if you're like me, you support your family once in a while. I have to drive down. I'm driving down tomorrow to Santa Cruz to help my father-in-law set up his iPad because I can't use go to assist and it's dry. <laughs> I wish I could, but for Mac or PC, go to assist. It's the best. Try it free 30 days. Go to assist.com slash security. All right, Steve, shall we start with uh, the usual security updates? Yeah, we have uh, just a couple things because, you know, in, in recent weeks, we've had such catastrophe with oh, Adobe terrible. and yeah. Windows and everything. So uh, as a consequence, it just isn't that much. I did note, however, that and I've been meaning to bring this up a couple times and I finally wrote it down and remembered um, there's an extremely popular media viewer mostly i think used for visual uh you know jpegs pngs and so forth called urfan view oh, i r f yes i r f a n view v i e w uh the good news is he named it after his with, with his first name urfan rather than his last name which i cannot pronounce <laughs> um but so the even urfan confuses people i have to the, say yes the urfan is you know, at least pronounceable. Um, he's now at 4.27. And I noted that I was at 4.01, I think. The, the reason I bring it up is there have been some subtle security problems uh, popping up recently. And there's no automatic update. You can't even go to the app and ask it to update itself. You have got to go do this manually. So... I would imagine people who've been using Urfan View for some time probably have older ones. I don't think this is a big emergency. It's not, you know, a high-profile attack surface, but it's worth bringing yourself up to date. The Probably the best way to do it, there, there's two different files anyone needs who wants to do this. Um, one is the Urfan View XE itself, the installer. And it does upgrade very nicely over its prior version. You don't have to uninstall or go through a bunch of hoops. And the other is a plugins because it accepts plugins for just a phenomenal number of of different media formats that it's able to handle. You can go to uh, the the home site of Urfan View, but uh, he doesn't have any downloads from there. He's got a page full of links to other places. The best other place, I think, is just software.com. 
So if you go to www.software.com and then search for IrfanView, I-R-F-A-N-V-I-E-W, that turns up just those two files. And in fact, that's the, the software.com is his preferred provider for the plugin file, which is how I stumbled on this. And I saw that he also has the latest version of the regular uh, main program setup file. So go to software.com, search on the site for IrfanView. You'll find the two files to download and you just run the, the main installer first and then the plugin installer and you're set. Uh, and that will, th- this latest version, 4.27, as of this podcast, does fix those those small, subtle, known potential security problems um, in this particular extremely popular viewer. Apparently, that he's um, in aggregate seeing more than a million downloads a month. So this thing is widespread. Um, so... You know, it's interesting because you wouldn't think something like that, something so simple uh, as a uh, as a graphics file viewer could be uh, dangerous. But we're learning that that's one way you can make a data file dangerous is if there's a hole in the viewer. Yes, exactly. And that exactly. And, a, and, a, and, a, and a malicious data file is a particularly nasty beast. Well, and these, you know, large images are now physically large, so they're able to contain a mm, lot of code. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's not, you know, they're not like their little 5K things. You know, you, you, you look at the file from a, from a high-resolution 8-megapixel camera, even compressed, it's a couple meg, and that could be a couple meg of malicious code. And you think, oh, it's a picture. You know, that can't hurt me. I, you know, the, previously we've been trained to believe that executable files were the, the big problem. What we, of course, learned is and we've discussed this many times, is that you know any sort of problem, even in the rendering of an image, can allow someone who's clever and malicious to, to get your computer to ex- execute the image rather than display the image, and that executable code can be malicious. So definitely something to worry about. Um, you know, again, not a big emergency, but why not do it? Because this thing isn't, uh, your Irfan view is not updating itself automatically. Thus, I would imagine lots, I mean, it's, it happens to be my viewer. I've got it on my system. Now I've got 4.27. So our, our listeners should sooner or later, if they're, if they're users of Irfan view, uh, do that. The only other problem that I ran across that was of any interest, really, there's all kinds of obscure little nothing problems, but there's a very popular download manager that's just called Free Download Manager, which is used um, uh, often for downloading. Uh, it's used as an add. Oh, oh, oh! One thing I forgot oh, is that. Oh, Irf- oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, I was a little annoyed. Irfan View by default wants to install the Google Toolbar, so I mean, it's not, oh, not yeah. like that's not a bad thing. But yeah, it's but like, I hate okay. it when they. But, uh, I do too, but I guess he's got to. You know, that's how he makes money. Work. Because it's a free, it's a totally free program, yes. and Google doesn't pay him money. But if you do searches through that Google toolbar, he gets a commission on okay. the uh, so on the ad sales. So. If you are a Google toolbar user, it's a good way I to guess, support him. You know, yeah, exactly. But you know, I don't. I'm not a person who likes to install superfluous things for all the reasons we discuss over the last 249 episodes. So um, I did note. I, I you know it's def- it's enabled by default. And so you'll want to disable that uh, and not just click next uh, during in the installing uh, uh, dialog too quickly. 
Uh, and all I had to say about free download manager is it also doesn't update itself. There is a known publicly uh, exploitable problem with it. So you may know if you're using the free download manager to download both HTTP and BitTorrent files. Apparently, it's a popular BitTorrent downloader, too. Uh, if you go to their site, they're not very good about managing version number stuff. But the one that's there has fixed the problems. So if you do know that you use the free download manager, um, I don't. But I, I ran across this little blurb. Um, you ought to update yourself. In security news, I noted, sadly, that the, the world seems to just have gone nuts over Google's Wi-Fi mistake. Um, and I'm sorry about that. I mean, I really do think it was a mistake, as we discussed in detail last week. I don't think there's anything malicious. I think the lesson here, I mean, I, the only reason I'm glad that's getting attention, except that it's getting the wrong kind of attention, is the world needs to wake up to what open Wi-Fi, to unencrypted Wi-Fi means. And, you know, Google wouldn't have gathered any data, wouldn't have been able to, because they certainly weren't decrypting it. Um, they wouldn't have been, you know, they were, they were just sucking in the packets that were being broadcast by radio in the air and never had any intention of doing anything with it. And I'm no Google fanboy or apologist for them. I just think this is a problem with unencrypted Wi-Fi. And I wish this was getting the kind of attention I think it should. Instead, it's getting, I think, really the wrong kind of attention. Now, not only, first was Germany, as we discussed last week. Now, the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, is getting into the act and going to be doing opening up an investigation, unquote, as are France and Italy. Ireland simply asked Google to delete the data. Thank you very much. We don't care about this. Just please delete it. Uh, the U.K. had asked the same thing, but there are some, some groups there that are saying, no, no, don't delete it. We want to inspect it. We want to do some sort of inspection. And now a woman in Oregon, Vicki Van Valen, and some guy in Washington have teamed up and filed a class action lawsuit. What a surprise. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Any excuse. Uh-huh. Now, the good news is, in the U.S. at least, it's necessary to prove tangible damages, not just to say, oh, I had open Wi-Fi and Google drove by. Sorry, being annoyed doesn't qualify in the U.S. So I think this will go nowhere. And I hope whatever attorney is probably, you know, drooling at the prospect of, you know, going after Google with some class action ends up spending time and getting nothing. I, I, I mean, Google's going to fight this and I think they should. So... I'm I'm sorry to see that this is taken the direction that it has, but uh, I think that's to be expected. Nowadays, you can't do anything without getting sued, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, Google, I'm sure, has a few lawyers somewhere in that. I think I, they got all the money they need to defend themselves. <laughs> I I'm not saying that they're, they're by any means defenseless. It's not like you know the MPAA suing some mom exactly. She had some video on her machine by mistake. Right, so, right. anyway, this. You know, uh, I'm I'm sorry that this has happened. I wish that the lesson was to everyone. I mean, I wish that people hearing this who are not listeners already of Security Now, to whom I know I'm preaching to the choir, you know, encrypt your Wi-Fi if you don't want people to be able to 
easily listen in on what's going on. Right, so, right. Um, and Microsoft, um, in one other last piece of news, or actually second to last, Microsoft has confirmed a vulnerability in 64-bit Windows 7 involving the uh, what they call the canonical display driver, the CDD, um, which uh, allows potentially, it will crash Windows and they're concerned that it would could be engineered into a remote code execution vulnerability. There's a problem with the driver's parsing of of information, which is as it's passed from the user space into the kernel. We'll be talking about all of what that means in today's operating system episode. Um, it only involves the arrow interface. So if you turn arrow off, if you disable arrow, and actually Microsoft is recommending that arrow be disabled because they have no fix for this currently. It's not in the wild. It's not a zero day. No one has exploited it yet. But I just did want to bring it up for anybody who should know that um, that the 34-bit, the 34, the 64-bit version of Windows 7 has this problem. And so disabling arrow until Microsoft has a patch for it is what Microsoft is recommending. Hmm. Lastly, um, I ran across a very nice facility which I tweeted about, and actually several times now my tweets have been in the top tweets on Twitter, um, which other... <laughs> Did you ever think you'd be saying that, Steve? No, no, no. <laughs> and in fact, Leo, if you go to grc.com, yeah. look, what, look at the top of, our, of the grc.com page, you'll see three icons you never expected oh, to see. Oh, blogger, Twitter, <laughs> and RSS. I'm liking it. Yeah, I'm liking it. Lately, been sucked up by the dark side. So, um, um, wow. Well, I'll find out about your blog in a second. But that's really good. That's great. What I wanted to tell people about is a nice facility that was created by just sort of as as a as a benefit to Facebook users called ReclaimPrivacy.org. ReclaimPrivacy.org, um, and. I know from the feedback that I received that even Security Now listeners who are also Facebook listeners who thought they understood the amazingly convoluted and complex privacy settings at Facebook were surprised. What this ReclaimPrivacy.org offers is the ability to check your Facebook, your current Facebook privacy settings to make sure they're doing what you expect. And in several cases, people who thought they had understood what they were asking for were found, d discovered, thanks to this, this, this um, uh, script that checks settings, that in fact they had missed a couple things. Well, you so, know, as we've been recording, Facebook has had a, been having a very uh, last-minute uh, special press conference Mark Zuckerberg uh, speaking to the press about this privacy issue uh, admitted uh, mistakes. Said uh, we weren't clear. They they explained I think fairly coherently what they had done, why they had done it, uh, and um, they are going to change the privacy settings. Their new model will be a lot simpler. This is a screenshot from the New York Times of it's not up yet. Uh, the new privacy settings, and you can see there'll be a big button that you could push. 
So you could say sharing on Facebook and click friends only and really shut everything down as far as we know. I mean, we have to wait and see what it really does. Uh, you can also turn off the sharing with, uh, with applications and websites, the Yelp, Pandora stuff that they were talking about. So it looks like Facebook has responded with something simpler. But, of course, this is just a screenshot, and it's not, it's not live yet. And, uh, and meanwhile, I think this ReclaimPrivacy.org is a very good thing to do, a very good solution. Right. So they'll be making it simpler, hopefully, soon. In the meantime, yeah. ReclaimPrivacy.org. And my Facebook page, as of today, is gone. All my Facebook stuff is gone. And, I, you know, I don't miss it. It's funny you're 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 becoming more social. I'm becoming more antisocial. <laughs> well, I'm. I, I did read an interesting an interesting page, and I wish I could find it again. But I and I've looked for it, and I wasn't able to find it again. Someone who was making the point early in this Facebook brouhaha that that the internet was social. I mean, the internet was lots of pages all linked together, and essentially, I think you know they were. They were making the point that Facebook was was deliberately trying to create, you know, an enclosure, which, and one of your complaints, Leo, was that you had to be a member in order to to participate at all. Right. That is, you weren't able to just look at people's Facebook pages. You had to join, create one, and then you were part of the inner sanctum of 400 million people who have done this. Um, and I thought that was sort of an interesting point that it's like, wait a minute, what do we need Facebook for? I, you know, I, I think the concept of easily user created personal web spaces makes exactly. a lot of sense. You, you've got a blog now. Far better for you to control your blog. There's no question of them censoring you. Facebook does delete posts that they determine to be spam or for one reason or another, they believe they've censored posts in the past. Well, and didn't something you wrote or said recently, didn't some, um, wasn't there something that was just deleted that was a surprise to you? Well, we, yeah. Um, I, on the radio show on uh, Sunday, uh, was That's talking was. about this. Yeah. Um, one of our uh, uh, affiliate stations, KNOI in Texas. That's what it was. Yes. Uh, the general manager there sent me an email saying, help, they've deleted our pages and, and they haven't explained why, which they don't do. They don't say why. Uh, and he believed it was because there were links on the page to me deleting my Facebook, the video, uh, and uh, discussion of Facebook privacy and, and so forth. Um, now, we won't know really. Uh, you can't know what Facebook's intent was. Facebook did respond. And we're going to have both them. Elliot Schrag's offered to be on the radio show and uh, from Facebook. And, um, and we'll get the uh, GM of the radio station on as well. But uh, Facebook says, no, he was a spammer. And this was their rationale, which I found very far-fetched. Over the period of a year of this Facebook page, he had asked 150 people to be his friend, and only 24 had said yes. Uh -huh. So they felt that meant he was asking too many people to be his friend. He said, well, I was asking people who had fanned us on the fan page if they wanted to be friends with us. Mm. It seems to me that's not a lot of spam to ask 150 people to be your friend, and then over a period of a year... Uh -uh. Uh, so we won't really, we can't ever know why. They've reinstated his page, of course, because they got a lot of attention. Then during the show, and you probably heard this as well, I said, well, let's test it. Why don't you post on your Facebook page, I'm thinking about deleting my page, here's how, and a link to the WikiHow article. About half of those posts were immediately deleted. 
Oh, no kidding. Facebook says, well, our spam bot detected, believed there they were spamming that link. But I find this all very difficult to believe. But even if it's true, the underlying point remains, which is you don't control the content of a Facebook page. So don't think of it as your web presence on the net. Even if you persist on Facebook, which is fine, I don't have a problem with that. First of all, just treat it as a public page. And second of all, have a page like your blogger page or somewhere where you control it and it can't be deleted. Now, even blogger has deleted pages if they're pornographic and so forth. So, you know, if you run your own server or you go somewhere where they don't do that, that's fine. But you need more than one. And you need a presence on the web that is yours, I think. Don't you? Well, yes. You have GRC.com. No one yes. can take that away from you. Exactly. Although, uh, again, for for these 400, certainly... For 400 million people who are using Facebook, I can see the the benefit of, you know, creating a web presence, ha- having a facility um, like I guess MySpace was before, where you know you're able to to put yourself on the net and be and be found and and connect up and do the social thing and all that. So, I mean, I I, I definitely can see a place for it. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's valuable. In fact, you know, it's the you, real you problem. It's being, so good oh, and so useful. That it's yes. like uh, a roach motel. <laughs> you, can't, you can't check out. So I just, I, I have not, I've not missed it. But I love so, Twitter. I use Twitter. I'm very happy with Twitter and Buzz. I love Buzz even better. I mean, there's lots of yeah, things. Yeah, well, I mean, you it. and I are connected and technologists yeah. and certainly our, our, our listeners I have like the ability to yeah. put pages up and so forth. Yeah. Speaking of blogs, GRC and Steve, that is me, uh, now have Blogs, as you say uh, on the page, you're entering, dragging, dragged, kicking, screaming into the 21st century. <laughs> so, wow! Uh, Blog.grc.com will take our listeners to GRC's low traffic blog, and Steve.grc.com is mine. And I actually had these almost put together. Last week, when when you were mentioning, we were talking about WordPress and and Squarespace, and I didn't say anything at the time because I'd already made a pretty substantial investment. That's in these fine. Yeah, up at, it doesn't at, really at matter. Yeah, I couldn't say anything, or people would jump on it immediately and say, "Hey, wait a minute, this doesn't you have you have typos, and this is only half written." It's like, <laughs> yeah, yes, 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 I know. Anyway, so I officially launched it. Um, there's the the email system that I had built eleven years ago. Currently has seven hundred and ninety thousand and six members. Now the problem with having seven hundred and ninety, is it or seven hundred ninety-two thousand and six members, is I can't send email to those people without immediately being shut down. Right as a as a spammer, mass spammer. Yeah. So, so my intention is that the blog.grc.com blog will be the replacement for G, what was GRC's email system. That is my place for to announce corporate level stuff. There's two postings there now. The first one is called 2008 and 2009. Where did they go? Essentially, you know, what have I, what was I doing during those two years to sort of explain where the time went um, and the projects which were started and are near completion and then 2000 uh, and then and then 2010 is the second posting which is my plan as of this moment for the year 2010 um so 
what I would hope people do who are listening and, and interested is subscribe to the blog. Go to blog.grc.com and subscribe to that, which will simply give them a notice when I put something there. It'll be low traffic. It'll be strictly GRC related news, new services, new things, new features, updates, and so forth, new freeware. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff that I'm in the process of wrapping up from 08 and 09, which I'll be announcing um, before too long over the course of time. And then my, my plan is to very delicately and slowly trickle one final piece of email to that mailing list, starting with most recent to least recent, because certainly many of the email addresses, I'm sure, have long, are long since dead, um, since it's been many years since I mailed anything to that 792,006 people. Jeez, that's an amazing number. Wow. So I'll just trickle out a notice saying, look, this is the last thing you will ever get from this email system. We are formally shutting it down in favor of a blog. Please go to blog.grc.com and subscribe to that because, of course, WordPress isn't going to be shut down as a spammer. They'll, no. you know, they're sending right. spam, they're sending email out. I almost said they're sending spam out. They're sending email out all the time uh, for, you know, all the subscribers to all of the blogs. This is a got. very nice blog. You did a nice job. I really like it. Thanks. Yeah. Clean, simple, you know, yeah. just, just sort yeah. of the basics. WordPress.com is a great place. I mean, it, you know, it's free and it, uh, it it's powerful. It's robust. It's very simple. Well, I, and I did go look at Squarespace and I, I, I thought, whoa, this is way more, more than, than I need. need. Yeah, I mean, probably the yeah, case. Because I do have my own website and right. I didn't want to rebuild a website. Right. I just wanted a facility that would allow me to do posts. And and speaking of that, over at steve.grc.com, and those are all, those both blogs are cross-linked, steve.grc.com will be sort of my personal column uh, though I only have one thing there now, I wrote a my first blog called Facebook and the Ford Pinto, um, which uh, reminds us of basically this notion of of what corporate what what corporations' goals are, and that Facebook exists for the purpose of leveraging the information provided by its users. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the mean, there will always be this tension between the users and their interest in privacy versus space, uh, Facebook's interest in using that information somehow. And so, you're getting already a ton of commenting, which is great. That's really great. Some really great followers. I did, yeah. I did, I tweeted that the blogs existed. That's how there's you any... See the power like, of that? It's they, they go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, it really yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, well um, done. Welcome. So we're getting there. And <laughs> Welcome to I, our century, Steve. <laughs> speaking of, of being in the century, I wanted to mention that for people who poo-poo Twitter, and I don't have anything against people poo-pooing Twitter. I mean, I, I when I mentioned that I was doing this over in the news groups that are, you know, traditional, the GRC's traditional NNTP old school news groups, there were a lot of people who said, oh, I've lost all respect for you. Well, actually, there was one person who said that. But there were there were certainly a lot of people who were like, oh, no, this means you're going to leave the news groups. It's like, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. Um, but I, I now that I understand what Twitter is, I want to take a minute just to explain it for people who keep hearing it and just don't quite get it. What I what I now understand is the degree to which it is public. It mm. is 100 percent public. Mm -hmm. That is everything about it is public. When you, 
when you when you look at someone on Twitter, like when you go to twitter.com slash sg.grc, just in your web browser, you know, there I there is my the 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 history of postings, the tweets that I have put up. And you could see how many people are following me. Well, then you can click on followers and see who's following me. And you can click on any of them and and see them and who's following them and who they're following. And my point is that this is all open. It's all wide open and all public. And so I sort of like, I mean, I like that that's what it is. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is secret. There's a there's an API. I actually spent part of the day yesterday writing uh, code, which will be up shortly, to, to the Twitter API so that that new page on GRC, grc.com slash news.htm, that's the the page that those three icons in, in GRC's um, menu, the, the site-wide menu now link to, they all just go to there to say, here's the way to do things with GRC. We've got RSS feeds for the blog and for Twitter um, uh, are the GRC and my personal Twitter account and, um, and something else. <laughs> oh, the blogs and Twitters and RSS. Yeah. yeah. All three of those things. And, um, so what I, what I like about Twitter or what I now understand is that it's just a really public open system. So everyone who's there you can see who they follow. You can see who follows them. You can you can follow those links down this massively interconnected tree, and everything that they've ever tweeted is in some database somewhere, which all these clients allow you to access and and see if you're curious. So you know that's what it is. It's just it is sort of it is what it is. It's a whole bunch of people who are are interconnected and sharing these short little, um, you know, bits of information with each other. And so for me, it's useful to just share things that I run across, uh, share news of of things happening uh, with me and, and GRC. So I think it's neat. It's fantastic. I'm really glad you're doing that. Yeah. Um, and I learned of something thanks to someone uh, sending me uh, a note back on Twitter, someone whose handle was Buck or is Buck Walter um, found that Skyhook had a Wi-Fi update facility. We talked last ah. week. Yes. In in the Q&A, there was a question from one of our listeners who said, hey, uh, just to remind our, our listeners of, the, of this question last week, his company had moved five miles away and he found that his iPhone was the the mapping and the geolocation system was being confused until it got a GPS fix. Um, it when it was using Wi-Fi, it was getting the wrong location because they'd moved the access points. So right. the Skyhook technology hadn't been updated. Well, you can go to www.skyhookwireless.com/slash how it works slash submit underscore ap dot php or he sent me 
a bit.ly, a, a short URL. So it's bit.ly slash lowercase x, uppercase h, uppercase m, lowercase n, lowercase u. And that expands to the same URL. And what that takes you to is Skyhook's interface for for updating their database, specifically for fixing this kind of problem. So, so you go to a website to do it, though? You log yes. in? Okay. Yeah, you go to their website. That's a good way have, to do it, actually. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And, uh, and so you know, they give you instructions for how to get the MAC address of your access point. And so basically you, you type that in and provide the information. And so there is this sort of way to close the loop and update their database, which I thought was pretty cool. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And I know of that thanks to Twitter. So there yeah. you go. You see? You see? <laughs> it's Meanwhile, magic. a listener of ours, Ed Gillette, sent a nice testimonial. He said, Steve, yet again, Spinrite has saved the day and brought a Windows 2000 server with lots of data. I guess if it's a Windows 2000 server, it's had time to accumulate lots of data. <laughs> he said, back to life. He, and then he says in all caps, Inaccessible boot device BSOD, which of course is the blue screen of death. He said, I keep a copy of the Spinrite CD in my car when I go out to a client site or to friends just in case. In this case, Windows 2000 server C colon drive had a corrupt boot sector after a power cut. Irritatingly, the server was attached to an APC UPS. But after the last rebuild of that box, the management software to perform the secure shutdown when battery was depleted hadn't been installed. So, of course, what happened was the power outage was longer than the batteries would last. And so the, the technology wasn't there for the APC UPS to tell Windows to shut itself down. Instead, apparently, it just died. So he says, anyway... Quick level two scan blasted through the disk with one unrecoverable sector right at the start. Level two completed, and then he ran a level four, which indicated that the problem sector no longer had issues. He rebooted and presto, all up and running. He said, my Spinrite has paid for itself several times over by now. It's a pleasure to have it in my toolkit. It's previously dealt with some truly knackered, as he raised it, dying disks, and managed to resurrect them enough to pull data off them before giving their final sigh. Servers, laptops, TiVos, you name it. My Spinrite has repaired them all. One of these days, I'm going to hit it with a, I'm going to hit a hard disk with a hammer, burn it, and then immerse it in water and see if Spinrite recovers it too. <laughs> I will let you know. Hats off to you, Mr. Gibson. Thanks again, Ed Gillette. So thanks, Ed, very much for the nice feedback. Excellent feedback. Well, I'm ready. If you are, we're going to get to our um, Fundamentals of Computing series. Kind of the final, although I still I think networking really counts as still part of it. But the operating system is about as high a level as you can get in the PC. Right. So let's hear how operating systems work. Okay. Um, we began back in the 50s. Um, so operating systems are today, here we are in 2010 recording this, uh, as of this day or date or year rather, not specifically, 
this particular day. They're 60 years old. Um, originally, computers back at the beginning had no notion of an operating system. They, they were just these very expensive, um, rather limited machines. Typically, they had like word sizes of 32 k, Sometimes big ones were sixty four k. But I mean, even I mean, I mean that's as big as they got back then. That wasn't a small machine. That was you know a big multi hundred thousand dollar installation in a university would have thirty two k. And so the problem was. How do you make use of this machine? And in fact, at, over time, as machines grew larger and also a lot more expensive, keeping them busy was the biggest problem because it would take time to, to load a program into the operating system. Then the OS would spend some time running. And of course, you've got the debugging of the program to deal with too. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing to remember is that Computers at this time were were rarefied. You know, I mean, this was the the men in the in the silver, I mean, the silver in 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 the white smocks on elevated floors with air conditioning, and and you had one machine that was basically held hundreds of people um, in thrall because their jobs were about keeping this very, very expensive, you know, half a million dollar piece of equipment busy. So what, so, so the original model was what was called an open shop where the people who had a job to, to run on this machine would sit down and pro, you know, load their code, load their program into the machine over some length of time and then work with it for however long it took. Meanwhile, everyone else was standing around tapping their feet, wondering when they were going to be through because, you know, it was their turn to, to again, to, to the goal was to keep this thing that was so expensive somehow busy all the time. So this open shop model switched to a so-called closed shop where you you, instead of the actual people who wanted the work done doing it themselves on the machine, you, you created sort of a, a layer of separation. Now, instead, people submitted their jobs to the staff who were more adept and more expert at, at using the machine more quickly. So, that, so you, we got a level of efficiency that way. And also, there would be a queue of jobs to be run that had been submitted, so there, so there was a backlog. Well, of course, this meant that people often had to wait longer to get their results. But in, in general, the goal of keeping this machine busy, you know, being better at keeping it busy, what, what was achieved that way. And so that sort of introduced this notion of batch processing, where there would be a queue of things to do, and people would would submit their 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 work. Um, into the beginning of the queue and then experts who were better at at processing the the data or these jobs in the queue would then do the work. Well the problem still was that that there was a large setup time 
in between these jobs. So, for example, programs might take, you know, a few minutes to run, but would take half an hour to get themselves set up and going. So, so people looked at, at these systems and saw that they were still being very inefficiently used. And the problem was that the, the IO, that is, you know, typing up punch cards and then, and then having a stack of cards um, would take a long time to read a deck of cards into the machine because the machine was much faster than the card reader. And similarly, on the back side, ultimately, you were trying to print out reports of some sort, and the printer was much slower than the computer. So, and, you know, and we've talked about this when we we're talking about interrupts and I.O., the, the, the I.O. systems, the idea that the computer could be busy doing other things and every so often send a character to the printer, the printer being so much slower. But here, in, in a system that was... That would, there was no concept yet of 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 time sharing, of multi processing, of doing more than one thing at once. That just hadn't occurred to anyone. Well, and frankly, the systems at the time they, they weren't capable architecturally of doing that. There wasn't the there, they they didn't have stacks. That didn't come until and along until later with with Burroughs, the early Burroughs machines, the five thousand series machines, first in, introduced a stack architecture. So so here we've got this machine. That is 100% I.O. bound. It's sitting around waiting for cards to get read. When, they find, when, when the program is finally loaded in, then it takes a short time to run it compared to the time it took just to read it in. And then on the back side, once it's done, now the computer sits around waiting for the printer. So, the, so again, looking at this, it's like, okay, how do we solve this problem? Well, what they used was they used magnetic tape in order to decouple the slow speed of the physical IO devices from the, the much faster speed of the computer. So now what happened was people would punch their cards as, as sort of like this, the slowest step of, of the process. So now you'd have card decks. Then there would be a number of machines which read cards and wrote them to mag tape because mag tape was much faster than cards. So, so jobs would get punched on cards then as, and, and that would ha- happen, you know, by some key punch operator that was skilled at, 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 at running key punch. Then those would, would get written to mag tape and, and, as many jobs as possible would get be put on the tape. So the tape would be filled up with jobs to do until it until it was full. Then that would be mounted on a uh, taken from this machine that its sole purpose was just to read cards onto tape. Then the tape would be stuck on a on on a large mag tape drive connected to the computer, and it had several mag tape drives that were being used in round-robin fashion for input and another set used in round-robin fashion for output. So this mag tape would get loaded, and as soon as the computer was done with the previous mag tape on a different drive, it would start reading in jobs from mag tape drive number two. Meanwhile, the first one would be rewinding. It would get pulled off. 
and stuck back on the card reading machine. And so you could see, I mean, it's literally, it's like a, I mean, the, the people were running around spending all their time trying to keep this machine busy. And you can sort of think of it as like a, as a hierarchical funnel where slow processes fed into a faster process that then fed into a, a finally very fast process. The, the, the upshot of this was that you finally had this very expensive machine, thanks to having funneled all the I.O. into it, you'd solved that speed problem. You were still running everything one at a time. That is, again, still no notion of the machine doing more than one thing at a time, but at least now you had a, you, you'd solved the input problem so that this thing was, the, the machine itself was, was now very quickly loading programs off mag tape, running the programs, and then dumping the output back onto one of a number of output mag tapes. Um, the printers weren't capable of keeping up with that. And, and so you had sort of the same sort of, in, in the way that you have a funnel on the input, you had an expansion on the output. The computer would would fill up a mag tape with output and then switch to an, to the next mag tape that was waiting. The operators would pull that fill that full mag tape off. Now take it to offline printing, where that mag tape would then be servicing an, a number of printers that would print the results out. And so you know that was sort of like the next the next level of how to keep this extremely expensive machine busy. So that notion that this whole thing was called spooling. And it's funny, I didn't realize until recently when I was doing some, some buffing up on the history that spooling was actually an acronym. It just seemed to me, I mean, I've, I've and I'm sure you, Leo, have heard of like, you know, spooling this off to, to tape, spooling it off to the printer. Spooling seemed like, you know, like a spool on a or thread on a spool where you were just storing it somewhere. Turns out that it's an acronym. S P O O L stands for simultaneous peripheral operation online. Oh, you're kidding! Spool is an acronym. Yeah, I never knew that. I know. I didn't either. I read I just, I mean, it. It makes sense because it's spooling something out like it's a thread. So I thought yes. that that's what it was doing. I always just assumed it was a verb, but it's an acronym. <laughs> Holy cow. Simultaneous peripheral operation online. That's where the word came from. How funny. So it was in 1959 that uh, essentially after 10 years of this, you know, fire drill of trying to keep a, a very expensive single machine busy, that John McCarthy at MIT, who, of course, famously gave us the lisp programming language and lots of other computer science in between, he wrote a memo first suggesting the notion of time sharing. The idea being that, in, and which was radical at the time, the idea being that rather than the entire machine being committed to, do, to, a, to a job, to a single thing, we would, we would, Slice up time and and handle it in a, in a round robin fashion or in some sort of a priority fashion. But the idea being have many different d jobs 
operating in the machine at the same time. And in fact, McCarthy proposed the notion of terminals being connected to the machine in such a way that the individual users all thought they had exclusive use of the machine. He recognized that that the duty cycle between, you know, of someone typing characters and how how rarefied character typing is would allow essentially the same kind of funneling as was being done with key punch operators concentrating onto cards, concentrating onto tape, concentrating onto the machine. He said, hey, you know, the you could achieve the same thing if you had real-time connection among many different consoles all feeding into a machine which was able to look at them all at the same time. And so, which was at the time, a, you know, a huge change, you know, conceptually a big leap in, in the way um, systems operated. So, so we talked last time when we, when we talked about the episode called the multiverse, I guess that was actually three weeks ago because um, we had a Q and a, and then we had the portable dog killer episode. Oh, and a Q and a before that. So I guess four weeks ago, anyway, we talked about in the multiverse, this notion of we we've, We've looked at this concept of the stack, which is able to store the state of the machine and that hardware interrupts that were caused by people pressing keys or a printer saying, I'm ready for another character. They could steal tiny bits of time just to fill an input buffer or to empty an output buffer and then switch right back to what was being done before. And so this this notion of interrupting the flow of instructions to, to and saving the state of the machine so that you can restore it when you come back and jumping somewhere else and doing something, you know, it, it's the the growth of that 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 created what we now have with the the current operating systems. So Operating systems over time have had various structures. Before there was a theory sort of of operating systems, before we had enough experience, they were just sort of big monolithic things. The idea was that, that programs would be clients of the operating system. There would be sort of this, this code in the machine which is always there. That's, that's the part that's not changing Programs would be transient. They would come and go and run for some length of time while their user was running them, and then they would be terminated, releasing their resources. And one of the things that quickly happened with this notion of time sharing was that the the designers, the, the people wanting to use these resources, were a little bit aggressive because notice that one thing happens when we chop time up, which is different from when we process jobs sequentially. If we process jobs sequentially, each job has the entire machine to itself while it's running. That is, however much RAM, for example, the machine has, the job can fill all of that RAM. But with 
McCarthy's notion of timesharing, things get a little complicated because if you're going to have many programs running at once, then they've all, all got to be in RAM. That is now, and I, I'm, I'm saying RAM because I'm used to t- today, but that was core. Core, back. yeah. Yeah, and 64K, remember, was was the kind of size of core these machines had. You know, so so one of the notions that was created was this notion of swapping. And swapping was a sort of an early form of what we now call virtual memory. We'll talk about virtual memory and how that works a little bit later uh, in this episode. But with swapping, the idea was that you would have fixed size partitions in the in core and you might have say 16 users using the machine at once at terminals and the and the single computer that was being shared might have an operating system that used some piece of core and again the, back then these the operating systems were all written by hand in assembly language which you know is sort of just a an ascii'ized version of machine language so a one-to-one correspondence between instructions that had been manually written by the operating system creators and the code that's being executed and then whatever memory was left over might be, for example, divided into four partitions. So you might have, say, in a 64K machine, you might have, normally these operating systems were relatively small because they weren't doing that much. You might have 8K taken up by the operating system. And then the balance of that memory, like 60 or like what, uh, what, 56K would be divided into four equal size pieces those would be partitions and and you'd have however four partitions and 16 people so obviously we've got a problem because what these four partitions mean is that the system can only actually be running can can be quickly jumping between four programs at once so swapping was the solution they came up with they said okay We'll have a drum, and drum memory was without this predates disk memory, and we will will have partitions on the drum to essentially hold all sixteen of these partitions, and we'll swap them one by one, or or actually four at a time, essentially into the machine's memory. So four programs can be running. And after a program had run its allotment of time, it would be sort of frozen and put out, swapped out onto the drum. And another waiting program would be swapped in to one of these partitions. And then it would be, being now in core memory, it had the opportunity of running. So, so that was the way back then they solved the problem of of needing to have essentially more resources because the now they were trying to do this time sharing they ha- they they needed to have more resources than, than the machine could could technically support because oftentimes you couldn't just add memory even if you had the budget remember that the instructions were so short 
that the instructions themselves couldn't address more than 64K words of, of memory at the time. So, so originally, there was no sort of theory of operating system design because no one had ever designed one before or written one before. So, so operating systems started as sort of big monolithic systems, and they sort of grew awkwardly and not very elegantly. And back at, at, at this time, a lot of this research was being done, if, if not all of it, primarily in universities. So the university sort of um, model is one to say, okay, wait a minute, time to reset. Um, this thing, this operating system has gotten unwieldy. No one really, you know, the, the people who wrote it graduated from, got their PhDs and left a couple of years ago. So we've, we've got these huge chunks of code that no one here knows about anymore. We need to just start over. One of the approaches that was taken was a, what was called a layered approach. As people began to apply real sort of academic discipline and thinking to the design of an operating system, they said, okay, wait, let's, let's try and do this in like a layered fashion. The, the bottom layer will be just the, the processor's own usage and allocation and the division of time. Then, then on top of that layer, we'll, we'll write the sort of the, 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 the management of memory and the drum, the drum swapping code. And then on top of that, we need to have an operator, some operator interface that is able to, to control starting and stopping these jobs running. And then on top of that, we need to have input output so that so that the operator's console can receive input um, and 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 then display the output, and then then on top of that is user programs that are running. So so there was this attention. They began to get the concept of of some sort of structure, a hierarchy, a, a, a layering of of the, the the way things were being built on the OS. The next problem they ran into as as systems became became larger was again one of complexity. The problem was that they recognized quickly that mistakes that were made in the operating system brought the whole system down. And these and and the the operating systems were continuing to sort of grow without end. So at one point this notion of a microkernel was proposed. The idea being to, to to recognize that the kernel is this privileged is, is this privileged resource where where it, it's sort of the the supervisor, the monitor of of all the programs that are running on it, and. It provides services, which we'll be talking about in a second, to the programs that are, that are running on the operating system. The problem with it getting big is that the, there's a given number of mistakes that are going to be made per thousand lines of code. And that just sort of seems to be an immutable fact of, of the way software is being written. So if that's the case, and if mistakes are bad... And they're especially bad in the kernel because a mistake in the kernel 
brings the whole system down as opposed to just a user program being aborted, but everybody else gets to keep running, a mistake in the kernel, and it's game over. So the logic was make it as small as possible. If it's as small as possible, it'll have as few lines of code as possible. And based on the, the average number of mistakes per line of code, there'll be fewer mistakes. So the microkernel approach was specifically designed in order to minimize the number of bugs that could bring the system down. On top of that, then, was created this notion of a client-server model. And that's, that's what we now see in modern-day, for example, Unix systems and, and, and in Windows, where you have, a, you have a relatively small kernel which provides the fundamental services to both user programs and services which are running on the system. So the idea is that, that the, the, the kernel is very small, and then, but, but also not very capable. It does the, the fundamental sort of lowest common denominator things like um, handling processes, dealing with threads, slicing up time, um, managing memory, um, managing file systems, the sort of the core services that the operating system, that everything uses in the operating system. And then you've got two classes of programs essentially running on top of that, that is using those services. You've got service programs which provide additional features, much richer features. Um, and then you've also got the actual client programs that are clients of those services. And that's sort of the, 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 the model of, of operating systems that, that has evolved. Um, we've sort of been talking, we were ta talking originally about mainframe operating systems and, and evolved into this notion of personal computer operating systems, but it's worth noting that, that there are operating systems of some sort in a microwave oven. Um, we, as we were talking about uh, complex systems running in cars, there's operating systems in cars. I mean, there's operating systems literally in in anything today that is is complex enough to have a computer in it. There will be some sort of operating system. So there's a there's also a hierarchy sort of in in OS scale. Mainframe operating systems still exist today. You know, running big, you know, Cray hardware, um, you know, huge and uh, large insurance companies will have huge mainframes still with the, I don't know if the guys run around in white coats anymore, but, you know, large, large scale systems that are still doing oftentimes batch processing that are producing reams of reports and um and and data and also lots of communications they tend to be very io heavy um coming down smaller we've got server operating systems which are are still large capable hardware that are then servicing the needs of 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 many people at once then we come a notch down to the personal operating system running on our computers. We're having many, typically many things going on at once, but generally serving one person at a time. And then 
handheld operating systems that are that are running, you know, smartphones and and PDAs still have a computer. There's still a, a core set of services that those are offering to programs that run on them. And then um, the notch down are embedded operating systems. And that's the, the class of OS where you don't think in terms of there being an operating system. There isn't, often there's no file system. There's there's no, there, there's no sort of generic user interface. This is a, an embedded OS is, for example, what's probably in our cars and microwave ovens you know, consumer appliances, DVD players and things. We, you know, we see a very purpose-specific user interface where there's a display of remote control, buttons that you can push. Um, but back there, in there, is an OS. There are a number of companies that, that license these for the, the common chips and their they're embedded and also some sometimes real time an RTOS an RTOS a real time operating system is typically a small system that prioritizes time over features that is it guarantees that code that's running on it will be will will be responsive and will will that nothing else going on in the OS will tie up the computer's resources more than than a certain amount of 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 time so there's a guaranteed latency in the operating system's ability to respond to the um the tasks that are running on top of it so what do all these operating systems do what what features do they offer well one way or another the 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 mainframe operating systems um, server operating systems, personal operating systems, even handheld operating systems, that is everything above sort of the embedded operating system, they provide a means for, for loading a program from mass storage into memory. Um, we know now that programs, processes, um, are typically composed of well, at least one, but in many times, many more than one threads where threads are sort of an abstraction of of a series of instructions that are being executed. A, a program could very well just be single threaded, as is, as is the terminology, where it starts and the the program executes only conceptually one thread of execution at a time. So there's only, for example, one program counter associated with that process because there's only one thread that has, that is at a specific location at, at any point in time. And as we explained in the multiverse, you can have multiple threads because a thread is able to spawn or fork another, uh, essentially another conceptually asynchronous um, uh, stream of execution so that it's able to go uh, uh, this this forked or spawned thread is able to go off on its own and do something else for example it may it may be responsible for reading the keyboard or or updating the display or doing some you know other things that are sort of asynchronous to the the main work that the the um, the primary thread of the process is doing. So the operating system 
is the thing that oversees all that. It has a somewhere, some hardware, a timer, which is generating interrupts at, at a given frequency. That interrupt is what's responsible for yanking control away from individual threads running in individual processes and getting control back to the operating system. When that happens, the operating system takes a look at what's going on and decides if the thread should continue running, if it's time to give it to a different thread in the same process, or if that process has used up its allotment of time, time to, to, to bring back to life a, a, a thread on, in a different process that was previously suspended, in which case it restores the state of a given thread as if that thread had never been, had never been stalled and just continues executing where that thread let off. So, so that's the job of scheduling, which is the subject all by itself of books on operating system theory. Scheduling is amazingly complex, and it, it, it's easy to sort of stand back from a distance and say, okay, well, this just has to divide time up among all these threads. But it turns out that when you start actually doing it, there's all kinds of complexity with deadlocks and stalls and, and, and competing priorities. And if something has a low priority and the things with higher priority never take a breath, then the things with low priority never get a chance to run. So that's not good. So it's, it's like a, an amazing mess of special cases. And again, has been the, the topic of, of you know, uh, many doctoral theses over, over the years. One of the other things that operating systems do is allow inter-process communication. That is, they, they support a means for allowing processes to, commute, to communicate with each other, which is often something that, that co, co-working processes want to be able to do. You want to be able to, to have some sort of communications between them, even though the operating system is all about inter-process isolation in some cases, you do need to facilitate communication. The operating system provides that mechanism because there is otherwise no direct means, for example, for, for one program to mess with another program's memory. You want to manage that carefully to prevent mistakes from happening and also, of course, to prevent deliberate abuse from being possible. One of the other things that all of this relies on is memory management which we've talked a little bit about, but, but never really directly. The idea is that, the, that in every case, all these operating systems basically produce an abstraction of, of, what's, of the machine's underlying resources and of time. Time is, is, and the passage of time is an abstraction as well because from a thread-centric standpoint, a thread just thinks it's executing all the time. The thread has no awareness that, that time isn't all its own, that it isn't running all the time because control is yanked away from it and its state is, is saved. Then the state is restored and it picks up exactly where it left off. So from its standpoint, it's just running all the time. In fact, that's, we know that's not the case. There's, 
there's thousands of threads in a typical system that all believe they're running all the time when in fact on a single core system only one is actually running at any time in a multi-core system you can have as many actual threads running as you have cores so so the operating system is is essentially creating an abstraction of the underlying resources one of the resources is memory processes can much as was the case back in the days of early time sharing where it was possible to for for a process to to be sharing memory with other processes back then you could only have as many partitions of a certain size as there was room left over after the operating system had been accounted for. In this day and age, we've got this notion of of virtual memory and the ever-present, for example, Windows users are familiar with the paging file or 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 the sometimes called still called the swap file. The idea being that that processes believe they have a much larger amount of memory than they actually do and this is hidden from them the, the 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 this this reality of how much memory they have is hidden by the operating system if the process attempts to to execute or or read or write memory outside of what's currently loaded in the system the operating system using this virtual memory technology will will get control literally at the instant of a program's attempt to read or write memory that is not physically loaded at this time. The operating system, that, that creates what's called a page fault. The operating system gets control at that instant, sees what's going on, and says, ah, the program is trying to access memory, which we've had to swap out to the hard drive because of limited resources. Other programs needed to use physical memory. So what, what was happened was that memory was paged out, as is the term, onto the hard drive, while another program that, that was running was, was actually using the underlying physical memory. So when, when, a, when a program attempts to use memory, which doesn't physically exist, it's been paged out, the operating system gets control, sees what's going on, decides, okay, um, do we page this in? Do we suspend the process? There's a whole bunch of, of decisions to be made. As I said, scheduling is itself a huge issue for operating systems. Typically what happens is because physical I.O. is necessary and always takes time, the the act of the process touching memory that isn't physically located or that isn't physically present in the system suspends it. It's the the memory is queued up to be written or to be to be read from the system, except that there's there's no doubt some other process using the physical memory that's in use right now. So that needs to be written out to the swap area so that the memory which had been swapped out can be brought back in. Like I said, this gets really complicated very quickly. But the bottom line is 
what ultimately happens is this the so-called swap file or paging file or virtual memory file it's a a oftentimes very large extension of the physical memory in the system and we talked last week or last time we were talking about this about the notion of caching where we where the processor was had very fast access to its own registers and then it would also have a cache of maybe 8 1632 k in the old days megs now maybe several megabytes and that would be a copy of what was in physical memory that would be maybe hundreds of megabytes or a gigabyte well if you can see that that forms a hierarchy from the register in the chip to the cache and oftentimes there's a, le- a level one cache and a level two cache level one being smaller and instantly fast level two being larger not quite so fast and then you have physical memory well virtual memory is the last the last largest layer of this hierarchy where it represents sort of this super physical memory that is really slow in as much as it's written out on mass storage which is typically a rotating medium in this day and age and so it's very slow to read and write, but it's very large. And so that's sort of the, the, the virtual memory forms the, the final layer of this multi-layered memory hierarchy where we get, we get smaller and faster all the way up to the individual register of the machine. And the operating system manages all of that. One of the other things the OSs do is, is support a file system so that um, the programs running on the operating system are able to, again, see an abstraction known as files, which exist only because the operating system creates that abstraction for the, for the programs that are running on the OS. It knows about the physical organization of the the media the the mass storage on the system but hides all of those details from the programs that are running under it steve is taking a small drink at this point <laughs> for those of you listening at home my throat was getting scratchy <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> well, you said it wasn't a lecture, but this is a lecture, but a great lecture. I'm really enjoying it. It's fascinating. So um, one of the things that happens is that notice that we've got floppy disks, which are small, 1.44 meg, for example, in the, in the famous instance of, of the IBM PC, and, and have a physical organization with some small number of sectors around some small number of cylinders on two sides. But we might have a multi-platter hard disk that's got thousands of sectors arranged around millions of cylinders and multiple platters. Well, the operating system's drivers understand these, these specifics of the hardware that they're driving 
All of that is hidden from the programs that run under the OS. The program sees this, this abstraction of named files. And so it's able to say to the operating system, hi, um, open for me this file of this name and let me read it. And the, 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 one of the main innovations that operating systems had was that this, this concept of I don't care where it is, I don't care what media it's on, and in fact, even as far back as, as um, remember, Unix and CPM, there was this notion of this could be paper tape or this could be a hard drive. You know, there was this, this disconnection with the, with the I.O. system and the, the physical devices that were running underneath the operating system. So this abstraction is provided by the operating system. And then there's also an abstraction provided by I.O. drivers where the operating system would have a defined mechanism for interfacing to, for example, file system devices. And different drivers would be used to to interface the operating system to very different storage mechanisms. You know, so you have a floppy driver which which is able to to answer specific uniform requests from the operating system, translating them into the instructions needed to to work with a with a physical floppy drive hardware. And you'd have a mass storage driver, a given for, for a given hard drive, which is able to take the same operating system requests as the floppy driver, but in this case, translate them into very different specific functions for its hard drive. So, uh, so again, we 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 create these these boundaries of of abstraction where where the entities on each side of the boundary have agreed upon a protocol that is that is uniform, typically documented and not changing. So drives can get bigger, the drivers may need to change over time, but that that agreed upon that agreed upon protocol at the boundary of of the driver and the operating system or even the operating system and the application program that doesn't change and so that that allows things on either side to evolve over time which was another major innovation in operating system design and then finally the last thing that's that's come along in recent operating system architecture on top of of top of file systems and io is security where there's a an increased notion of of both wanting to prevent mistakes from compromising the system and wanting to prevent deliberate malicious intent from compromising the system so so there's this notion which is layered on top of everything of privilege the idea that that certain files can be privileged certain memory regions can be privileged essentially there's this notion of ownership and rights which are applied to all of the objects within the operating system, right down to and including the individual thread of execution. Threads can own objects, can have rights, and everything scaled all the way up from threads and all the other abstractions that the operating system creates. 
can have can have rights. And so, in addition to everything else the operating system is already doing, it also has to check the security. It has to make sure for, I mean, at the level of the individual action, it has to make sure that that action is permitted, that the thing asking for something to be done has rights to do that to whatever it is asking for it to be done to. So OSs have gone from starting off being basically a loader of code for a system which was struggling to be used enough to what we have today. I mean, we're all sitting right now. I mean, you're hearing this through probably a device with an embedded operating system. In Almost it. guaranteed. I, yes. don't, I don't think you could play it back any other way. No, there's no other way yeah. to play it back. Yeah. You know, Leo and I are sitting in front of computers that are right now, as we sit here, have thousands of threads all running, all all competing for resources, using the hardware, somehow staying out of trouble. And to me, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's truly a, a, a miracle that these things even work. <laughs> it's amazing. Are you done? I think that's it. Wow. That's operating system. I tell you, we got it. You got to put these all together on a DVD or something, and we'd have the complete set of building a computer from scratch. What fun. Now, next week, it's a Q&A. So if you've got questions for Steve, if there's anything you heard today that you have a question about or anything in the security world, you can uh, get a hold of him by going to grc.com slash feedback. That's his feedback form. Easiest way to do that. Uh, GRC is Steve's site, of course. Now blog enabled <laughs> yes and i would encourage our listeners to go to blog.grc.com and subscribe so that they'll get a short note from wordpress whenever i have some information uh, i'll try to i'm sure i'll be talking about important things here on the podcast as well um and of course i've got my personal blog steve.grc.com if you want curious about the sort of things more in a column format and and follow steve on twitter He's S-G-G-R-C on Twitter, S-G-G-R-C. And that way, uh, you, you know, that's his early warning system. I presume that anything big would come across there first. Yeah, and, you know, Naval Lint. And Naval Lint about vitamin D and the Ford Pinto. It is <laughs> GRC is the place to go, though, for Steve's great programs. Uh, not just Spinrite, which is absolutely the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. you got to have it if you've got a hard drive. But also all the free stuff he gives away, like Shields Up and Wismo and all sorts of stuff. GRC.com. You'll find 16-kilobit versions of the show there, as well as the 64-kilobit versions in high fidelity. The transcripts, the show notes, it's all there. GRC.com. You can watch video of this show. Steve doesn't post that, but we do at twit.tv slash SN. You can even subscribe to that if you want to put it on your iPad, pod, phone, whatever it is you've got. Um, you'll, yes, you'll need, you'll need threads to view it, I'm afraid. GRC.com. Steve, we'll see you next week. Next week, Q&A time. Yep. Thanks, Leo. Security now.